It's good to be back together again this evening. I noticed on the way here that the storms were raging and I was fearful that no one would come. But I look out and it, it is certain that you made it. Tonight I would encourage you to look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now 1 Corinthians 11 I would say is also one of those passages that we don't look at often. However, just like all of God's word, we understand the importance of it. And my goal is that we can understand it as we study through it today. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it, it brings up, or it's commonly known as that of head coverings, or it could possibly be that of not head coverings, if you're talking about the males in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 or the females in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, but it comes, it falls in, falls in order with chapter 10. And if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, you might notice that at the end of the chapter, it's referring to that of abstaining from meats that were offered to idols. And he said, hey, there's no need to, to make an issue here. If you understand that you can eat, then hey, eat. If it's going to offend somebody, don't eat. So you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to get just a little bit of the context before we get into chapter 11. Go down to verse 31. It says, therefore, whether you eat or drink, talking about that, he says, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. He says, give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. In verse 1, I believe it really ties back to chapter 10 where he says, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. What was his goal? In verse 33, he says, just as, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but rather the good of the whole, he says, imitate me. Do as I do. And as we start our lesson tonight, I want to really begin with verse 2 as we look at the chain of command that established in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the God-given roles. If you look with me, first off in verse 2, in chapter 11, verse 2, it says, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. In chapter, chapter 11, verse 2, I want to point out the praise that is given for the proper action. The proper action that's taking place is keeping the traditions. He says, I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions as they've been delivered. Now, in understanding traditions, there are traditions that are important and there are traditions that are not important. I believe that 2 Thessalonians would, would bear a lot of light on what is the, the importance of traditions. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 15, it says, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or epistle. Now, when he says word, he's talking about the inspired apostles or the, those that were inspired by the Holy Spirit that are preaching or teaching at this time. And then he goes on to say, whether in word or epistle. That's what we have left today. That's what we're able to study. We open our Bibles and we look at the epistles and if we want something to hold to, important traditions, there's only one place to find them. And we find them right here. If we look at the epistles of God's word, if we look at the epistles that were written, meaning the books of the New Testament, we can see the pattern or the tradition that we're to keep. Now, as we go throughout 
1 Corinthians chapter 11, they're going to talk about uh, some things that are transpiring or things that are going on at Corinth. That is very common to their society, something that they would have understood very well. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, he says, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions. Notice that praise is given for proper action. Now, on, on the contrary, you know, I love to be praised. I love to hear good job and we're so proud of you and thank you. However, don't think it was all just cupcakes and roses for the Corinthians. If you look at that of the Corinthian church, uh, there was plenty of rebuking that was done. There was plenty of things that they were called out for. You can go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and they're rebuked for being divisive, for the divisions that are among them. You can go back to 1 Corinthians 3, and they're rebuked for being earthly-minded. He says, you still need milk because you're carnally-minded. He said, you didn't get any deeper. You never grew in your faith. You go down to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and they're rebuked for their immorality. He said there's, there's, it's been told that there's sexual immorality amongst them. And for that, once again, they're rebuked. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that they're rebuked for hurting the conscience of those that didn't feel right about eating the meats that were offered to idols. They felt as though there was something that was important, that was special, that changed the meat so they could no longer eat it, but rather we understand that the meat was just meat. It was just meat that had been cooked over a fire. The God that it was offered to was nothing, and therefore, uh, as long as it didn't hurt the conscience of the brother, uh, it was nothing. So in 1 Corinthians 11, if you drop down past the context that we're looking at, they'll be rebuked once again. In verse 17, he says, Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the but for the worse, for first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I, in part, I believe it. Verse 19, he says, for there's factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. So, we see plenty of rebuking going on. Don't think that Corinth was, was marked out as this perfect place where Paul just says, you are the greatest people that ever did live. Nothing's ever been wrong in Corinth, but rather... There were many times that Paul said, you know, you've got some things that you've got to fix. You've got to improve upon, meaning you've got to get sin out of your life. You've got to act or live as a Christian. So we see that praise is given for proper action, but also throughout 1 Corinthians, there's rebukes that take place for improper action. You can drop down to... Well, as you read in verse 2, the point is that they held to the traditions just as they were delivered to them. They held to the God's Word. They held to the things that Paul had taught them. I think of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 15. It says, well, that's the one we looked at. We see that uh, they held to the traditions that came by word and epistle. That's the point. Hold to what is important. Hold to God's Word. It's not our traditions that are important, but rather it's God's traditions. It's God's word. It's the traditions, the things that were taught by those inspired writers. All right, notice also in verse 3, the God-given roles. It just so happens in our society that uh, this is often hated. It's something that people don't want to talk about, and it seems as though we better stay away from it because, you know, that just doesn't sound good with where we live. Uh, however, this is God-given roles. This is not Jared-given, but rather this is by God's design. 
In verse 3, he says, I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. We see the God-given role, seeing that God being the head authority, God, God being the head authority, if you look at, um, you look at the th way things work, God gave authority to Christ so that he could be over all things of the church. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 22, it says, And hath put all things under his feet, talking about what God had done to Christ, hath put all things under his, being Christ's feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church. We see God being the, the being that grants the role to Christ, the superiority, so to speak. We see God and Christ, but yet both are still God. We see that Christ is over man, and we see in that pattern that God says that man is over woman. Now, this does not make man more important than woman. It just is a difference in role. So, as we live upon this earth, by design, we follow God's pattern, God's roles, God's God-given roles. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22, it speaks upon this very subject, and it says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husband as unto the Lord. Go on in verse 23, he says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And then we see when he's talking about the church there, it says, And he is the savior of the body. What we're really talking about is how much Christ loved the church. And so the, as the, the wife submits to the husband, that then gives the role of the husband to have the desire to put the wife above anything else. We see as Christ put the church being the most important thing, he is the savior of the body, he was willing to die for the church. You can drop down into verse 24, it says, Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be subject unto their own husbands in everything. Within God's design, though, all are under the authority of Christ. The man is important in his role, the woman is important in her role, and the point is that each role is summed up in being obedient to Christ. And so as we understand God's God-given role in 1 Corinthians 11, we see the responsibility that is passed on to each person. All right, for sake of time, we're going to move on and we're going to notice the covering in prayer. Start in verse 4. It says, every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. But it says in verse 6, for if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. Within the covering in prayer, notice that there is a distinction that is maintained between the man and the woman. There is a difference in the role. Within society today, it seems as though we've got the idea that men are women and women are men and vice versa. No matter how you, no matter how you twist it, each one can just identify however they please. Even though our society might say that, that is not the way things work. But here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we see the different roles that are identified. As you, as you look at the covering that is spoken of, the covering that specifically from the, from the Greek, we can understand that the covering was more of a veil. It was something that uh, came to cover them, and in times past, it's been used as something to 
correlate with modesty. They were shamefacedness as uh, the modest apparel is, is mentioned. We see the veil that they have hanging down. You go back to the period of time when, well, except for me because my, my wife and I had an arranged marriage as well. But you go back to the time period of arranged marriages and they weren't able to see the, uh, the loved one until the veil was lifted. Now, I did see my wife before the, before the arranged marriage. However, I didn't have a choice, right? I'm just kidding. I'm very thankful and glad that Yvette picked me out. All right. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, though, as we see, it says, Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covers, dishonors his head. So within the man's role, he says, hey, have the, man's, have the head uncovered. Verse 5, it talks about the woman. It says, the woman who prays dishonors her head if her head was covered. Verse 5, it says, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if it were shaved. And then he goes on to say, in the following verse, that they can go ahead and shave their head. Just go ahead and shave your hair off, because since you didn't have the covering, you can have your head shaved when it wouldn't be covered at all then. All right, continue on with me. As you look at the woman is covered, the covering is part of showing her subjection, her submission to the man, understanding that every person as we come to the service, as we come to worship, as we live our lives in worship to God, the design is that we all show ourselves, prevent, present ourselves as in submission to God. The woman in this instance in 1 Corinthians 11 is showing herself in submission to man and also in submission to God in doing what takes place in 1 Corinthians 11. Now, don't lose me yet. We've got to go all the way through. So if you quit paying attention, you're going to lose the point. So you've got to follow along the whole way through. All right. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 4 through 8, we see the, the covering in prayer. Man is mentioned as uncovered because he is the image of God. We see the woman is mentioned as covered. And then we drop down just a little bit further. And we'll notice the creation of man in verse 7. In verse 7 it says, For a man indeed ought not to cover his head. Why? Since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. I believe this is pointing back to the creation account. You can go back to Genesis chapter 1. Back in the very beginning in God's plan, in Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image. According to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created him, man, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. All right, we see the creation that takes place. He creates God, he creates mankind on the sixth day. Go down to chapter 2 and verse 7 in Genesis, and it points out just a little bit more. We have a little bit deeper understanding in Genesis chapter 2. It says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Pointing to the original creation of man. That's what we're talking about back in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 7. And then it says in verse 8, For man is not from woman... But woman from man. Once again, now we're looking back at Genesis. In Genesis chapter 2, you can drop all the way down to verse 18, and it says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. God sees a problem. Man's there, and now he recognizes him as lonely. I will make him a helper comparable 
to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and, out of, and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever, whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gives a name to everything. And then in verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept and he, God, he, took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. So back in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 8, we've got the man that was created first. In verse 8 it says, man is not from woman. You know, there's always that debate. What came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, understanding the Bible, we know that the chicken came first. Understanding the Bible, we know that the man came first. And then from that, in verse 8 it says, but woman is from man. Now I was at a wedding this, this past weekend. And the preacher mentioned that the, at the time of the creation of Eve, when, when Adam goes to sleep, God didn't take a piece of his foot to signify that, that man would walk all over woman. God didn't take a piece of Adam's head to signify that the woman would be the head or the authority over the man, but rather God took a rib. To signify that they would be a help me. We have the, the purpose within God's design how we, that we have in the creation of man. God created a woman for a help me. That's what was spoken in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. Now as you go back to 1 Corinthians 11, let's look at verse 9 and following. It says, nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. So we understand the, the creation process of it. Now, in verse, 11, verse 10, uh, probably the most peculiar verse in all the passage in my mind, it says, For this reason, the woman ought to have a, the New King James inserts the word, symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now, I think it's a very interesting passage, that symbol of authority. We're talking about a power that shows the submission of the woman to the man within what is said in verse 10. And then it says, because of the angels, and what do we mean as far as because of the angels, if I had to give you my best guess, in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14, referring to angels, it says, Are they not all ministering servants? All right, meaning the angels in heaven are not God. The man on earth is not Christ, nor is the woman man. So each point shows the submissive relationship to the other. And so we have the ministering spirits, angels, in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14, sent forth to minister for whom shall be heirs of salvation. As they take note, evidently, according to, to 1 Corinthians 11 verse 10, it seems as though they take note of what's going on. And it says, for this reason, women ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Possibly the angels take note of what we do, showing our submission, and therefore they too needing to live perfectly so that they can remain in heaven have to show their submission to God. But we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 10 that there's a sign of submission that is carried with the woman to show her design, to show her, her place or her desire within the Christian family. All right, verse 11. It says, nevertheless, now I believe that if I had to 
in my shallow mind understand what's going on, it seems as though what we're getting to in verse 11 is the idea where the man has come to the point and said, well, you know what? I'm going to rule it like I got it. He says, this is my show. And so I believe Paul in verse, in verse 11 is correcting that. He says, nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman. Meaning you're not without her. You, you need her. He says, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. Verse 12, for as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman. But all things are from God. I believe this is designed to blow up that big head. He said, hey, you got the big head now and you think that you're really something special. He says, no, because you can't do anything without woman. So if we ever get the idea that by God's design that man is the, the finite, the perfect, the perfect being, well, Paul's saying, look, you've got it wrong. You've got the wrong design. Rather, rather within God's design, there's this this submissive help me for the purpose of both going to heaven and so by design they work together. I think that's why he calls it a help me. And then Paul corrects him and he says, don't get the big head. Don't think that you're all that, but rather do what we can and notice at the very last, the last phrase in verse 12 he says, but all things are from God. You know, we mentioned this morning Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28 where we see that there's neither male nor female within God's design, within the, within the creation account. We understand that there's no partiality. God loves us all the same. We're all going to the same place if we live as we're supposed to. And so in understanding, God did give us certain roles, just like within the Jews. There were priests that had different roles than other people. But if we can follow the role. We can please God. All right. Now we get down through verse 12. And don't lose me yet. We're down to verse 12. And we'll notice here the custom of the land. In verse 12 he says, For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman, but all things are from God. Verse 13 he says, Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? And so he says... You just think about this. Then he says, Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. So he says, Judge within yourselves in verse 13. He says, Just evaluate within yourself. Think about it to yourself, and to them it would have been a fairly easy thing to understand. He says, Judge among yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? He says, you make the call. You live there. You live there right now. He says, you think about it. Is it okay for a woman to pray with her head uncovered? And it just so happens that, different than what we would think today, when they thought about this question, they would say, hmm, yeah, we probably shouldn't do that. We probably shouldn't do that. And he says, does not, in verse 14, even nature itself teach you that, a man has, that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him. We see the, the design in verse 13 is the question that is posed. They, they've got this question posed, well, well, what do you think? I think of Romans chapter 2 and verse 14, it says, For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves. So by nature, there was a, 
understanding at Corinth about having their long hair or their short hair. There also would have been an understanding at Corinth within their society of whether or not they would have worn a head covering or not. Now, I also probably need to point out, since I didn't earlier, within the society it was customary for one that had, for a woman that had shaved her head, it was custom to be a sign of having been a harlot, uh, having been one that was uh, living a sexually immoral life. And so, so within their custom, they would, have, they would have recognized that. But then we get down to verse 14 and 15. It says, Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? I believe as you look around, for by and large in the world today, you're still going to recognize that the majority of men have uh, short hair and the majority of women really appreciate their hair. It's something special to them. And so he says, You notice by nature... I think of all the young girls, and I can only imagine what it would mean if you were to say, we're going to hold you down and cut all your hair off. Now, if you told me that, I'd say there's not much left to cut. But uh, if you told some of the young ladies, it would be hurtful. You know, hair is a glory to her. Hair, hair is something that maybe the man notices and says, wow, she's got pretty hair. That's what I said when I met my wife. She's got pretty hair. And uh, we recognize it within nature. I saw somebody just whisper to their, their friend, uh, you've got pretty hair. All right. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, though, in verse uh, 14, he says, Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's dishonor to him? So he says, look, this is natural. You can understand it. And then he says in verse 15, But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her, for a covering. So we've got, we've got all this covering that takes place, and he says, look, that hair is precious to her. And I believe that most people still today, as far as women go, are going to take great pride in their hair. They're going to take great pride in, in having that hair. I know my mother, uh, as she gets older, she always wanted to color her hair, and then she said, it's time to embrace it. So she decided to grow out the hair that is now white. But the point is, she sure doesn't want to lose it all. She doesn't want to lose the hair, but rather it's still a glory to her. It's something that she greatly treasures. All right, nature itself teaches, teaches that this hair was important to them. Nature itself taught that the, man was to have, that the man would have had short hair, and then nature itself taught that the female, on the other hand, would have the long hair for a covering. And then it goes on in verse 16. It says, but if anyone seems be, to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Now, in understanding what's going on, I mentioned back in chapter 11 and verse 2, because he says, I praise you that you keep the traditions. What traditions were important in chapter 11 and verse 2? The God-given traditions, meaning those that were spoken by an inspired apostle or one that was inspired through the gift of the Holy Spirit or through epistle, as is mentioned in first, or 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 15. But now as we get down to verse 16, he says, But if anyone seems to be contentious, he says we, I believe making reference to that of the inspired apostles, the writers. He says, we have no such custom. And he says, nor do the churches of God. So within that, we have the understanding, just like in chapter 10, 
where we're unable to bind or force one to eat meat that was offered to idols or rather or possibly rather than eating the meat in front of one that felt it would be wrong we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 he says look when it comes to the church he says considering us we being the inspired writers or the churches of God obviously the only place we can go to find our traditions to find our God-given ordinances is the word that's used for traditions in uh, the King James Version in verse 2 we have to look to God's word so he says but if anyone seems to be contentious we have no such custom nor do the churches of God so what do we have well it's kind of like some of (laughs) two weeks ago we talked about holy hands is it wrong that somebody lifted them no is it wrong that they don't lift them no but rather the holy hands came from within. So he says, is it, would it be wrong if someone was contentious they didn't have by desire to do this? Would it be wrong for them to do it? Absolutely not. Would it be wrong for them to not do it? By tradition, the churches of God nor the epistles taught this. There was no such custom that was a requirement. However, within Roman society, and if you go to the Middle East still today, it seems as though a common practice would still involve that of veiling, of having a covering in society. So as we consider the, the teaching in 1 Corinthians 11, as he gets to the very end, he says, if anyone seems to be contentious, meaning if there's anyone that's really going to fight about it here at Corinth, he says, look, we don't have that custom. Okay, now the custom that's important is it's not taught from here. Now, as we look at the the custom of the day, they did have a custom that was a man-made custom. But when Paul speaks in verse 16, he says, we have no such custom, meaning inspired teaching. We have no inspired godly force you to do this teaching. So he says, if anyone seems to be contentious, there's no such rule. As I think about our society today, It just so happens that we have customs of the time. There are things we do right here that are customs of America. You know, as you go back and study church history, there's a lot of things such as uh, podiums that we've we've imposed. And you'd be hard-pressed almost to find very many places that don't have a podium. You know, we also, from the... The, from times past, there's this idea that there's an elevated, elevated place. It's a custom. It's not something that's required. It's not something that is divinely inspired, but rather it's a custom that we do. And if someone was contentious, if someone didn't want to do so, it's not required that we have a podium. It wouldn't be required that we stand on an elevated, heightened space. Although I believe today we probably do it more so that people can see we have customs that we use. One such custom that we use within the world today, uh, I've debated on uh, mentioning it or not, but I believe we can mention it in good lights for all. But one of the such customs that we have today is dress. There is a custom within our society 
to dress as nice in a reasonable sense, as nice as we can. I believe if we were to take pictures of the, the church in the 1950s and show them a picture of us today, they would probably look at us and say, they are so dressed down and they don't respect God. However, I believe if we were able to read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 about the dress, Paul would say there are no such customs from us, nor the church of God. All right, now, before I give you, give you away at that point, we also have some things that, that really sadden me. And uh, I, think about, I think about our young people, and I know it's easy to have a desire to push our way. Uh, I know many times that I've had people tell me that they choose to dress a certain way so that they don't get asked to do things. I believe that's by poor design. Within God's word, there is no requirement as far as dress this, dress that, do this in your, in your showing yourself or presenting yourself. Just as though I don't believe that we're commanded to wear the veil today because the custom of the day did mandate it in a way. The custom of the day, they did it However, then Paul comes back and says, but look, that's not my rule. That's not my inspired teaching, and that's not God's rule. We have customs still today that we, we use, that we understand, that, that would be the norm. But I pray that as we consider customs, no matter what custom you think about, make sure the customs that we adhere to, the ones that we hold in high esteem, are the ones we find right here. I believe as we look around, we understand that the things in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, as he teaches on it, he says, look, it's not, it's not God's law. He says it's not, it's not through the inspired teaching of us, nor is it through the, that of the epistle. He says, I'm writing this to you, and in regards to their custom of the day, they could understand, look, in Olive Branch, Mississippi, in 20-something, whatever it is, 18? In 2018 that this is not a fight. This is not something that we have to make a huge deal about because Paul didn't elaborate on it. He didn't make it a rule. I believe we can look back at the church of the 1950s or the 1900s or probably the late 1800s and we would see far different things that take place. But that doesn't mean that we can't have differences. But I encourage you, as you think about the differences... We have to hold to the traditions that they're praised for in verse 2. We have to hold to the customs that are preached and taught by the apostles in verse 16. But don't let that be confused with doing just the things that we've done in the past. I hope that I've helped you as you consider that of 1 Corinthians 11. I don't mean to impose on any one person that you have to do this thing, nor do I mean to impose you have to do this thing. Because I believe by design there is no law there. The custom allows that it was done. And the custom in their day would have been that everybody would have done it. But yet 
just like then, if someone had come in and said, I'm not wearing that hideous thing. I believe Paul clears the air to say, it's not required by God. As you consider what we do, as you consider being a member of the church, my prayer is that we always get back into the book. We get back to the epistle. We get back to the inspired writers and the traditions that we adhere to are right here. Let's pray together. Our loving God and our Father in heaven, God, we come before you and we thank you for your scripture. We thank you for the, inscri the inspired word that we can read and we can understand and that, Father, we, we pray that we apply it to our lives. We pray, Father, that we can be like the Bereans who studied the scriptures, searching to see whether these things were so, to see if it was true. Help us to be a studying church, a studying body that looks always deeper to understand clearly the message that you have given us through your divine word. God, we pray that you bless us always and let us live for you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. It might be that you're here tonight and you've never given your life to Christ. Once again, tonight wasn't really aimed at, at helping you to understand the, the gospel plan of salvation, how that Christ died and how that he was buried and how that he rose again. And we need to follow in his footsteps. But rather, by design, my prayer is that you have a deeper understanding of God's word. But if you haven't given your life to Christ, listen close for just a couple minutes. Within coming to this earth, Jesus had a purpose. As you go back to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 through 25, we see the, 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 the virgin birth. We see the, the importance of Christ coming in who was the Son of God. Now this Son of God, Jesus Christ, he lived the perfect life and then he died. We consider that of the Lamb in the Old Testament. He became the perfect sacrifice rather than just a sacrifice that pushed forward our sins. We have a sacrifice that washes away. On the way home today, Anna talked about washing Charlie's white dress. And I said it will never be clean again because you can't wash it with the blood of Christ. The difference is when Jesus washes clean, there's nothing left. When we put our white clothes in the washer, especially mine, they never come white again because I made it really dirty. Now the correlation. There's a lot of dirty lives in this world. There's a lot of people that, spiritually speaking, work in the grease and the grit and the grime that the nastiest vehicle can put on you. But yet Jesus Christ his blood can purify that so whole that it was never as though it had ever been dirty. It's the cleanest of clean. We mentioned God's divine plan this morning when we mentioned John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Within God's design, we have hope for the future. Are you willing to put your hope in him? Understanding that it requires that we turn from that spiritual grit and grime, from that sin that's called repentance, 
Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, he said, repent. And then he goes on to say, and be baptized by design so that they could have their sins washed away. If you haven't given your life to Christ, that's what I beg of you to do. Give your life to Christ, turn from sin, confessing Jesus as your Savior for a lifetime. Telling the world about the blood of Christ that can set them free. Understanding that we too can be washed in baptism, rising to live for Him. If you haven't given your life to Christ, I encourage you, do it tonight.